Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, hey gang. Uh, What I am going to share with you today it was originally a sermon that I gave on June 6th about a passage from the eighth chapter of Romans. Unfortunately, the recording of that sermon got a little garbly, uh, but I wanted to sort of re-record something, uh, just record this quickly and share some of the ideas that we talked about, hopefully give you something to think about, pray over, uh, find hope in, if you weren't able to make it on Sunday. Um, But let's begin first with a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at this passage together. Lord God, I thank you for your word. However we use or abuse it, you still manage to 
bring truth and light to our minds and hearts. Today, God, whoever is listening, wherever, wherever they're listening, I ask that you would meet that person there. You would make them aware that you are already there with them, that you love them. Today, God, speak through my words, but also speak in spite of them. Thank you for all that you do. In your name, amen. So the passage today comes from Romans 8, uh, verses 1 through 17. So the phrase, the idea that passage ends with is co-heirs with Christ, which is a little funny. I, I want to, you know, I sort of asked the congregation at the time, and I, I want you to be thinking of it too. What do you think of when someone talks about an heir? What kind of person do you imagine if I say, you know, someone was an heir to a great fortune? Uh, I don't know what you imagine. The picture in my head is not altogether positive. Uh, I imagine kind of a Draco Malfoy type, uh, definitely like looking down at whoever he's with at the time and saying, do you know who my father is? And Paul is doing sort of that, but in reverse. That's the interesting thing about this analogy. Paul's not calling attention, like Draco Malfoy, to his own lineage in order to gain power or importance. Instead, in this passage, what he's doing is calling the Christian Jews and Gentiles of the Roman church to a higher way of life by reminding them of their lineage, by reminding them that they are all children of God. He's asking them the reverse question, sort of asking them, do you know who your father is? And that's the question I kind of want you to take away from this recording. Uh, if you don't take anything else away about the structure of the book of Romans or the life of the flesh, life of the spirit, just take that question with you. Ask it of yourself, ask it of your neighbor, ask it of the world. Do you know who your father is? To put it another way, do you believe that you are God's child? Do you know whose image you bear? If that concept seems a little weird, that's all right. We're gonna talk more about what this idea means and how we can apply it to ourselves and, and the world around us. But before I get into that question, uh, do you know who your father is? I wanna look briefly at how this passage kind of fits into the rest of the letter so far. Uh, Paul spent a lot of time in this letter to the Roman congregation telling the Roman church about their own shortcomings. Uh, what is definitely a multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation of Jews and Gentiles, both thinking that they have a better grasp on their faith than the other group. To which Paul has essentially replied, knock it off. 
you've both brought your fair share of dirty laundry. You neither have any business judging the other. And at this point in the book, he's aired most of that dirty laundry. He's gotten it all out there. But Ball continues to remind the Roman church of where they've come from. And now he's sort of moving to where they ought to be. And his two general words for those two categories of where the Roman church came from and where they ought to be now are the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. I have a verse in the slides here. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, if you read this verse or really this whole passage without any context, uh, you might just see this flesh-spirit dichotomy as body bad, soul good, right? Like sort of don't commit adultery, pray a lot. And you could live a far worse life if you made that your life motto. Uh, don't commit adultery, pray a lot. Sure, who's going to disagree with that? But it is kind of a limiting way to think about things, right? Because the family of God is not disembodied. It's not fleshless. Uh, we see from the context of the letter that what Paul means when he says the life of the flesh, it's not about bodies so much as it is about a physical existence that's sealed off from God's grace. The life of the flesh isn't bad because it's physical. It's limiting because it's merely physical. I think of the life of the flesh as kind of this moral marketplace. If you think of it as like just being completely sealed off from any sense of grace or divine intervention, just this moral marketplace where we maximize our value by stuffing down our shame, boasting in our achievements, and always making sure that no matter how we look, we at least are looking better morally than the person standing next to us. Stuff down the shame, elevate our achievements, and always look good by comparison. That's the life of the flesh. That's the moral marketplace. So the life of the flesh isn't as much about adultery as it is about, well, looking good by comparison. It's about gatekeeping. It's about gossip. It's slander. It's keeping other people down so that we increase our value. So that's the life of the flesh. The life of the spirit then is not this mere disembodied life of sanitized souls. It's our word for what God's spirit does when those walls of self-centered moral codes crumble. When we become less concerned with our own appearance of righteousness and more concerned with actually helping the person next to us, actually helping our neighbor. 
But in order to achieve that, or even conceive of it in the first place, we're going to need a new metaphor. We can't view ourselves as merchants in the moral marketplace. We're going to have to start viewing each other as family. So Paul's going to remind us and remind the Roman church who our father is. He does this with the metaphor of adoption. Uh, I have a verse slide here. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. In order to call them to a higher way of life, Paul names the Roman church as God's adopted, fully accepted, fully loved children. And I think it's fitting that Paul uses that adoption metaphor, and it is a metaphor. One, because it does imply this movement from one life to the next. Like, this is where you were, and now you're adopted in. But also because the nature of adoption, in my experience anyway, is that we will always need reminding. In the first year of my brothers, my adopted brothers joining my family, they were four and six at the time, so it's almost 10 years ago now. But one of the hardest things to reassure them of in that first year was the promise of permanence. The idea that this is home, this is family, and you are loved. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about adoption, a sense of family that needs to be actively built, regularly reinforced, and occasionally tested. And in the same way, God's love for us is permanent. That's not what's in question. But that sense of trust will never happen by accident. Our trust of God, our recognition of our adoption, that will always need bolstering from time to time. We'll need to be able to ask ourselves, do I know who my father is? Do I believe that I'm God's child? So let's get into that. How do you remind yourself that you are God's child? What, is, what does that even look like? How is that a mindset we cultivate? I have a, I have a verse here from uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 8. Uh, that I think captures this new beloved child mindset very well. He writes it like this. This resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. So how do we ditch the marketplace and find a new life in the family? I'm sure that it differs from person to person. I don't really know what it will take for you, 
But one way I found helpful is by bringing things to God that don't matter. By thanking God for things that don't matter. If you're a parent listening to this, or if you've spent a lot of time with children, I'll ask you, do, uh, do kids only bring you the important things? Do kids only bring the stuff up to you that's, that's vital and crucial, the highest highs, the deepest despairs? No, no. In my experience, uh, kids share just about everything. Uh, it's not just like deepest crisis and hugest successes. It's, you know, mom, look what I made out of Play-Doh. Dad, Roblox isn't working. Like everything, everything is of the utmost importance and nothing is worth holding back. And while these things may not be important in and of themselves, I think in these insignificant acts of sharing and delight, I think that's where trust can truly be built. So this week, I want to put that out there as a possible homework assignment for you. Talk to God. Thank God for your comfortable underwear. Talk to God about that movie you love. Not out of obligation, not out of a fear that God will take a thing away if you don't thank him for it, but that you might believe in your parentage when those highs and lows inevitably come. Thank God for what doesn't matter today, that you might better believe he's your papa. You'll be more likely, I think, to call out the good in yourself as God's family resemblance. And I think you'll be more likely not to fear your own failure. So take the insignificant things to God and remind yourself, ask yourself, do I know who my father is? So remind yourself, but also remind the world. This is what gets me really excited about this idea. When we realize that we are being adopted back into the family we've always belonged to, we begin to see the family resemblance everywhere. And that's what makes this different as an adoption metaphor, right? Is there's not another family in town. We can see the family resemblance of God everywhere. We can call out the good in those who do not believe in God, and we can recognize it as common lineage. Whether they're religious or not, whether you're religious or not, we can recognize them as siblings to us, siblings to Jesus and children of God. Whether your neighbor worships God in name or not, the image is there if we have eyes to see. So if you're religious, when your non-religious friend takes care of the sick, feeds the hungry, or speaks truth to power, we can say, what you are doing has value. Tell me what that would do to the world if that became what Christians were known for. If Christians became known 
as the people who called out the good in others, rather than going around and telling everyone how much they suck, asking people, do you know who your father is? Do you know that this good you're doing has value to the tired social worker, to the tired daughter taking her father to the hospital? We can say what you're doing has value. And this is a reminder to us, before you cuss out the cashier, before you say that those in prison are just getting what they deserve, before you call addiction a choice, and before you dismiss your non-Christian neighbor and their views as of the world and therefore of no value, ask yourself, do you know who their father is? You may not at the end of the day agree with your neighbor, but it will change things if you view them as family. So what about the other side of that coin? We can call out the good, but what about the things in the world that are broken? I think this metaphor has something for that as well. Because if we believe that everyone is a child of God, then when we call out the evil in the world, it becomes more than a calling out. It becomes a calling up. It becomes a calling into a calling, a calling into a family. It becomes the ability to say to the violent nationalist, to say to that annoying uncle who always is spouting slurs, to, to the misogynistic frat boy, we can say to them, you're better than this. We can say you're better than this. Do you know who your father is? Do you know who her father is? Do you know whose image she bears? Do you believe that you're a child of God? Do you believe that both you and the people you are oppressing belong to the same family? That's the power of the idea of the family of God. None of this will be possible, though, I believe, if we don't start with the belief that we are accepted. When we believe that the table is large enough, we stop worrying if we're running out of chairs. And when we believe that the divine image is everywhere, we can call each other to the higher good that that image bespeaks and recognize recognize where that goodness already rests. When we realize that the world is our neighbor and our neighbor is our brother and our brother is a co-heir in Christ, we throw the doors of the church wide open and it becomes not a gate, it becomes not a fence, but a membrane through which can pass the gifts and the needs of the world and the church. And this is the good news. If we believe that the image of God is everywhere, 
we believe that there's no place we can take God. There's no place we can bring God where he does not, in some sense, already rest. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.